Oh 
So good to sing those songs together. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12 together. We'll remain standing out of honor for the Lord and His Word. And as you're turning, I'll mention also that as we pray after this, we'll be praying for one of our missionary families this morning, the Holtz. James and Rebecca, James is up here with me this morning, uh, leading the music. And so we'll be praying for them in just a moment as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God to us this morning. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come to you together as your people by the blood of Christ, that you have opened up a door of access to us through the curtain that is the flesh of Christ crucified on our behalf so that we can actually come and approach your throne. Lord, we thank you for that. And thank you that you've given us your spirit who within us can guide us in prayer. Thank you that you hear us as we come to you together as your people. Lord, um, we're just so needy for Christ. In so many ways, we recognize in our life our need for grace constant everyday need for grace and even in this last week we see the ways in which we've gone astray from you and turned aside and so thank you that we can come back together this morning as your people and and come again to the foot of the cross lord we need the mercy of christ we need the cleansing that only his blood can bring and we thank you for the promises of your word thank you that you say come let us reason together and though your sins are like scarlet they'll be washed white as wool. And Lord, we praise you for that, that there's, there's full forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Every sin paid for at the cross, nothing left uh, standing against us in the record of debt that was once opposed to us. Thank you for the freedom that gives us. Thank you for the comfort it brings. Thank you for how it, it frees us to be able to serve you with joy and with whole hearts. 
Lord, we worship you, and we thank you that you do allow us to serve you with that freedom and joy. We pray this morning that as your people, you would continue to move us from one degree of glory to the next, that you would help us to attain to the stature of the full measure of Christ, that we would be uh, what we ought to be in him, a group of people who are set apart from the world and set apart to Christ, living for his glory, living in a community of love together, seeking to put each other's needs and good before our own. Uh, Would you continue that work in us? And Lord, we also pray, even just in light of what we were just reading, that you would continue to raise up here at Grace leaders who would be humble and gentle and godly and, and have minds fixed on Christ and his glory. Thank you for all the leaders that we already have here at Grace who you've given to us. And we pray that you would continue to raise people up here at Grace to serve as well as in other places, that people would be sent out from here to have an impact for the gospel around the world. Lord, we thank you for James and Rebecca Holt. We thank you for their family. We thank you for the way that so tangibly they've been an encouragement to so many of us here at Grace. Thank you for the way that they serve with the Enclados ministry as well as over in El Medina. We ask you that you would continue to bless their family and their ministry. Would you encourage them? Would you help them to be faithful in the work that you've called them to do? Would you help their boys uh, grow to be uh, godly young men who love you and walk with you? And would you help them as as parents in that way? Thank you for them, Lord, and the blessing that they are uh, to so many of us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the way that we are gathered this morning to worship you. We pray that you would work supernaturally in our hearts by your word. Please give spiritual power to the preaching as we receive your word in just a few moments. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.
us to be amazed truly this morning. God, our eyes need to be opened so that we can see. Our, our ears need to be opened so that we can hear and know your truth. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Lord, thank you for being the, the source of change in us. God, being the power that is in work in us, being the very power that raised Christ from the dead. We thank you and praise you. Pray all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, the best leader ever, was known as the suffering servant. He made himself nothing to die in our place. He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Instead of selfish ambition, become a slave. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we're going to talk about leadership, we need to go to the Bible, and we need to focus on Christ. A Christ-centered leader is a humble and bold servant of Jesus. J. Oswald Sanders said, The humility of a leader will be an ever-increasing quality. You notice, if you point out, even over time with the Apostle Paul, what his self-assessment was. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, I am the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, 8, he said, I am the least of all the saints. And in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he said, I am the chief of sinners. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Leadership demands good followers. If you do an online search of the word leadership, it will get you over 5,260,000,000 results in half a second. You search Christian leadership, 336 million results in half a second. The sheer number of words spoken or written about leadership is literally mind-numbing. You see the lists, lists of the top 25 leadership books and 15 of the world's best leadership books. But I come to you today with the book, the Bible, which cannot be surpassed on leadership. I want to specifically see with you what First and Second Thessalonians offer to the discussion, especially will be anchored in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I hope that you will see with me today that Christian leadership is decidedly different than the world, and that's what's on the menu today is Christian leadership, and hopefully you will enjoy with me a feast of gospel goodness as we contemplate leadership lessons in First and Second Thessalonians. Just by way of review and just some background, if you're new to Grace, we're, we're glad you're here, and I want you to know for the last year we've been going through First and Second Thessalonians, verse by verse, and then we are taking three weeks. Last week we looked at le uh, lessons for the church in these two letters. Today, lessons for leaders, and then next week, life lessons. And last week we saw this, the church must have four primary things, 
first a regenerate membership instead of self-effort, that real Christians are resting in God's goodness in Christ. The church must have a receptivity to the word of God uh, rather than harboring lies. Uh, The word of God is is the way by which we are saved and sanctified. We must eagerly receive it. Very thankful for Grace Church. It is very hungry for the word of God. The church must be a righteous community instead of having unrighteous isolation. All because of the holiness of God, all because of who God is, and his kind intentions for his bride, the church. And then lastly, we saw that the church must have a a realistic perspective rather than a defeatist mentality. That Jesus is coming again. We must live in light of that reality. We, We must not say, well, the world is just bad, it's crazy, you know everything's going to hell in a handbasket, we'll just give up. No, we should be the most hopeful people on earth because we have the gospel truth of Christ crucified and risen and coming again. And so today we're looking at leadership lessons. It's for everyone. There are some strong implications for Christ-centered followers. And I must, you know, a lot more can be said than what I will say, but I will say what I can The main idea is that the church must have humble and bold servants of Christ as their leaders. If you want to be a leader, you need to be a humble, bold servant of Christ. Lead with love for Christ and his church, his bride. That's what should permeate, that should just just be through everything we do. When you live that kind of life, it's displayed here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, what you'll find is there are certain things that are true about leaders like this. And we'll see it straight from the passage. The first thing we'll see is that leaders that are humble and bold know their calling. They know their calling from God. And they display character and they show care for the flock and they live a life of exemplary conduct. Not that they're perfect, but they're a good example for others. That's the first thing I want to point out is about knowing the calling, though, the calling of God upon the life of a leader. And if you look at with me at the first four verses, it begins this way. You yourselves know, brothers, brothers and sisters, you know. And they're reminding them, you know this. Our coming to you is not in vain. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There was conflict going on. They didn't just throw in the towel. They actually kept going in the midst of hardship. And he said, we declared to you the gospel. You saw our bruises. You saw the blood dripping down from us, from the mistreatment that we received, not just emotional, but physical, for the cause of Christ. But he says in verse 3, our appeal does not come to you through impurity or error or any attempt to deceive. Those were the things they were being accused of. He says in verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. They weren't scratching itching ears. They weren't saying what people wanted them to say so they would like them or they wouldn't get upset. They were bringing the gospel, but it was because they were approved by God to do it. They were approved by God. He says, Earlier, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The first and foremost thing, and I, saw, I said this last week, the church must have a regenerate membership. 
If it's a fake membership, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. That you need to have born-again, real believers being members of churches. If you're a member of a church and you're not a believer, if you're not a, a, a born again by the Spirit of God, if you're not regenerate, that's just, you're just saying things. And the first and foremost thing is that they knew that they were called by God to salvation. And this is what he says in the first chapter. We know that you were chosen by God. We know it. We see it in your life. We see a testimony where, wow, this, these people are Christians. He says it in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, calling to salvation, and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, because people who are saved have a resolve to do good and, and want to have their faith at work by the power of God. And it's also that Jesus would be glorified, so that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we all ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Born again by the Spirit of God through the Word of God and then sanctified, being made like Christ. Not perfect, but made like the perfect one. But leaders, if there's a, if there's a leader in a church that is not saved, and, and I've heard of stories of pastors and elders that you know realize one day that they, they didn't know Christ, and some repent and believe. But you first and foremost must know that you're saved, a calling to salvation. But then I want you to notice something. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And what you'll notice in verse 1, Paul says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He was called by God to the position that God put him in. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then you look in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, the same words. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God chose them to, to do what they did in the church. And you see this in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 20. And Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself, and they travel 30 miles to be with Paul. And we can get 30 miles in 15 or 20 minutes, right? They, you speed, they would have walked or, or journeyed, it took a, long, a lot longer. And why were they going? Because Paul had said, I need you to come and talk to me. I need to say something to you. And listen to what he said in Acts 20, 28. He says to these elders in the church of Ephesus, you pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to those entrusted to your care. In which, to all the flock, in which, you're in part of the flock, you're part of the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He said the Holy Spirit made you overseers. By the way, even at Grace Church of Orange, even today we announced we're going to ask the congregation who, based on 1 Timothy 3, 
Who do you see qualified as elders and deacons? Elders and deacons and deaconesses. Who do you see qualified? And based on 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, who meets the qualifications of elder? Who, do you, who would you put forth? But that doesn't mean that just because you think that, it makes it true or that they will become a leader. And sometimes a church will get it wrong and put the wrong person in, in a position of leadership. It's happened over and over again in many churches around the world for thousands of years. But the congregation is to acknowledge and to confirm God's choice and praise God, so often the church gets it right. And, and, a, and a leader that, is, that knows their calling, that knows that God has called them, and that it's not them putting themselves up to the front and pushing themselves up and saying, I am going to be a self-proclaimed leader. What they have is a, a humble heart. If you're a leader, you don't need to tell everyone you're a leader. It only makes you humble, never proud. There should be no swagger. There should be no scheme. There should be no self-serving motive in a leader. There should be sincerity. There should be a willing to, be, to suffer. There should be even sincere tears over the flock. But no swagger, no scheme, no self-serving motive, but humility. My favorite authors ever, missionary Elizabeth Elliot, she said once, I am clay. I'm clay. She was uh, musing over Isaiah 59, 9-11 that pictures us as vessels in the potter's hand. And she said that the word humble comes from the root word humus, earth, clay. I'm, I'm clay. Humble. Christianity is a relationship of following Jesus and you'll never be a good leader unless you can be a good follower of Christ and follower of others. I tell leaders all the time, there are realms you go into, you are not in charge. You know, there's times that I show up somewhere and I say, hand me a shovel. And as I dig, I'll pray and I'll talk to people and I'll think, you're in charge. I'm not always in charge of every situation I'm in. Leaders aren't always in charge. There's roles they're given. To preach the word of God, to pray for the people of God, to work as a team, to take up a towel and not throw in the towel and be a plurality of leaders. We have a plurality of elders here. That's biblical. And a, and a leader knows their calling. That's the reason you need to know that you're, you were chosen by God to be saved. And if you, if you put, get put into a position of leadership in a church, it's not against your will. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Aspire means you want to do it, and you keep wanting to do it, and you're not pushing yourself to the front, but you're willing to do it, and you wake up in the morning, and you say, I want to do what I'm called to do. We were rejoicing yesterday as a family. Our, our, one of our daughters, Savannah, got married. And some people are like, you're preaching tomorrow? I'm like, I want to preach. This is what I do. I, I want to be here. And I had this thought when I woke up this morning. I thought to myself, if I were just getting up to do a sales pitch. Now, if you're a salesperson, Praise God, that's a great job to have. But I'm saying if, if this is what I was going to do, is get up and just give a sales pitch, I would have stayed home this morning. But I get to open up the word of God. And, 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 and as an imperfect, clay feet person, bring the perfect word of God to bear upon our lives. And it's a privilege, and I wanted to do it, because I aspire and I keep aspiring. But plenty of people could have done it. We have great preachers here. But I wanted to. 
You know you're calling, you're chosen, appointed, and trusted by God so that when times get tough, you don't throw in the towel. You don't turn tail and run. You don't say, you know what, this is what, didn't what I signed up for. A leader who knows their calling knows that sometimes times will be tough. And what they do is they know their calling, but then they also display character. They display character. We see this in verses 5 and 6, this humble integrity. He says in verse 5, we never came with words of flattery. They're not buttering people up to make them like them. As you know, they saw it. They were prove, it proved true in their life. He said, not with a pretext for greed. I'm not trying to get things from you. God is witness. People were accusing them. They knew the truth. He says in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, the applause of man. No, we're not doing this. He said, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I need to tell you something about this. They could have made demands. We often say in leadership circles, if you have to tell everyone you're the leader and you have to tell them they need to listen to you, you've already lost it. And what Paul is saying here, though, is that it would have been valid for us to say, you know, we are apostles of Christ and you do need to listen to us. As it is, they said, we command you. At times they said, we command you. The Holy Spirit was doing it. You're not going to hear an elder from Grace Church say to you, I command you to do this. We're not going to do it. I'm not going to say, command me to get a cup of coffee. You know, I don't drink coffee. But seriously, you're not going to hear a leader at Grace demand something from you. But we might urge, we might encourage, we might implore, please do the right thing. Please do what the Bible says. Please act like a Christian. Because that is our, that is our role, because we're saying it to ourselves. Servant leadership. He says in verse, in verse 5 of chapter 1, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. First John says, we know love by this, that one would lay down his life for the sheep. We're called to lay down our life as well. No greater love. To be humble, have character, not go for applause. Missionary Hudson Taylor was once speaking at a really large church in Melbourne, Australia, and you know how in, you know how introductions go when you go preach somewhere and people go you know just lay on the lay on real thick and they were speaking in eloquent, glowing terms of Hudson Taylor and all that he had done in China. In fact, they introduced him as our illustrious guest. He walks up, he just stands there for a moment, he says, dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Samuel Brengel was a longtime leader of the Salvation Army, and he, he was once introduced as the great Dr. Brengel. He goes home and writes in his diary, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. Charles Spurgeon once said, we have plenty of people. We have plenty of people who could not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. Samson killed a lion and said nothing about it. He said, say much of what the Lord has done for you, but say little of what you have done for the Lord. Do not utter a self-glorifying sentence. There must be character that bleeds through. Humility with a boldness, with integrity, 
the motivation to please God. And that kind of person has, has followers that follow them because they follow Christ. It's not a dead end street. It's not a trip off a cliff. There's integrity, there's honesty, there's no misleading, there's no withholding. There's no purposely deceiving. He says in verse three, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, not to please man, but to please God. Let me say something to the kids. Let me say something to the kids, the youngest among us, or even students that are the next youngest among us. Your character counts. How you live, what your, where your heart is at, it counts. If you, if you think about it, to, to all of us, if, if a leader knows their calling, and they know first that they were called by God to salvation, and that they were born again by the Spirit of God, only by the grace of God, for the glory of God, then, then it, will, it, will, it will sink into their hearts such that they want to have a character that honors Christ because they didn't get where they are in their own strength. Your character counts, kids, students, everyone. You need to resolve to be sincere. You need to resolve to tell the truth. When I stand up here, I need to tell you what the Bible says and means, not twist it into something that will lead you in a wrong way. I'm going to give in to demands to hear what, what you want to hear and scratch itching ears if anyone has an itching ear. A leader needs to be unafraid to say what the Bible really says and means. And I've seen it happen too many times. Too many leaders fall to the temptation to say what will make people like them or not get upset. And I've said this, you know, sometimes I, I cling on to a certain sentence. Some of you who know me really well, you know I, I say certain words over and over again to the point of annoyance, I'm sure. When I was a little kid, I had these light blue corduroy pants I had to wear every day and these tan socks. My mom had to wash them all the time. So I, I get a little bit hung up on certain things. I get it. But there's a line I've been saying pretty often recently in my teaching and preaching. It's this, millstones are on standby. Millstones are on standby for anyone who would lead anyone else into error, lead anyone else astray, or would lead anyone else into sin. Those are sobering words, and we must take it soberly. I say often, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. And what I mean by that is if the leadership is healthy, it doesn't guarantee the church will be healthy. It guarantees that the church will be healthier than if the leadership wasn't healthy. That our, our leaders, our plurality of leaders, I say it to our, our elders all the time, as we go, so goes the church. Do, can we disagree with each other? Absolutely. Can we hash it out? Absolutely. But when we're out in public, we do not play one another against each other. We do not, we do not say things about one another that would, would cause anyone to think, oh, we, we're not together. No, we, we are a plurality of leaders. We don't all think alike, but we are united in Christ. We know our calling. We were chosen by God for salvation and appointed men into the roles that God gives us, and we have to display a character that, that really bleeds through with a, a humble integrity. We're not perfect, but we're aiming to be showing the right kind of care and the right kind of life. In verses 7 and 8, it speaks of showing care for the flock. And I, I hesitate to tell you that these are my favorite verses on Christian leadership because then when you see these verses, you'll think of me. I would tell you this. I cling to these verses. Cling to them. 
Here's what he says. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Angela and I have five kids. I've watched my wife, Angela, take care of our five kids and, and nurse them and care for them and, and protect them. Because we were gentle among you, like a nursing mom taking care of her kids. And then he says this in verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, like we loved you so much, our hearts just, just bled for you. We were ready, we were willing, we were able, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, ourselves. Because you have become very dear to us. And very dear is the same word for beloved. We know you're beloved of God because you have a testimony of faith in Christ. And you are beloved to us. Because God has bound our hearts together. I hope you have a testimony of faith in Christ. I hope that every one of you that hears these words would say, yes, I know that I'm a believer. But I, I'm not stupid. I know some of you probably aren't. You're probably not a believer. If you're not a believer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust that he, he shed his blood on the cross. The perfect son of God became the servant, the suffering servant, and died on the cross in the place of lost sinners and shed his blood, paying the penalty our sins deserved, and was buried and rose on the third day and promised to return. And all who believe in him have eternal life. And the thing is, if you're going to be just in the body of Christ, you need that, or else you're not in the body of Christ. That you would know with assurance that you've been called by God to salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Don't say, well, you know what? I've got to make myself better first, or I've got to be perfect first, or I've got to have some standard I live up to. No, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. How do you know if you're regenerate? Because you're repentant. How do you know if you're regenerate? You know you're repentant. How do you know if God's born, uh, caused you to be born again by the Spirit of God through the Word of God? How do you know? Because you're repenting, because you confess your sins, because you want to live a life that pleases God, because you want to please Jesus in your life. That's how you know. If you don't know that, you need Jesus. But from that, flowing out of that, is, is a care for the flock that the whole flock should have for one another. But then if someone is put into a position of leadership, it just ratchets up the idea of you need to have care for the flock. There is proof that you love the flock because you, you will even lay down your life for the flock. He said, I, I, we, didn't, we weren't looking for your applause and not your affirmation. We were looking for Jesus' well done and we just want to do what God calls us to do. As a student, Jonathan Blanchard, who later would, would establish both Wheaton and Knox colleges, prayed this simple prayer, Oh, my Savior God, Deliver me from sluggishness on the one hand and from, um, from, from ambition on the other. May I do all I can do and feel no more lifted up than if I did nothing. A leader cares for the flock. They know they're saved. They know they're called to do this and they work hard not to be a burden to the flock. They work hard not to drive the flock crazy. They take responsibility even in leading the way and exercising discipline. Not with a heavy hand, but with a light touch, with, with light reins, but firm. They care for the body because it's beloved. They love the flock. One of our newer elders said to me this week, I think he said it to me this week, 
I needed to know if I was going to be an elder, do I love this flock? Like a mother, like a father. Even though there might be conflict at times with people, because people are in the mix. Welcome to the club. What did you expect? But a leader exercises influence through personal contact, through care, not manipulation. By the way, if you're trying hard to influence people, you're, you're, you're probably influencing them towards you. Just follow Jesus sincerely, and you will be a correct influence. Everyone influences someone positively or negatively. You seek the honor of God and the good of others. Know your calling. Display character and show care for the flock. Humble integrity that bleeds into sharing care, showing care for the flock. And it also shows forth in exemplary conduct where we're Christ's servants. In verses 9 to 12, and you need to look at this with me. In verse 9, put your eyes on verse 9. You remember, brothers, brothers and sisters, you remember our labor and toil. You know how hard we worked. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. You saw it, you know it, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, how many times is he gonna say it? You know it, you saw it. Like a father with his children, we exhorted every one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. They weren't coming up with an agenda that was self-motivated. They said, this is what you need to do. Follow the word of God. Follow Jesus. You're exhorting them to be comforted in Christ, but to follow Christ closely. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, he says, Finally, then, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God, that you are, as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you about this. If there is a leader with an exemplary life, I want to follow him. But what, I, what, you, what you find is a leader that lives an exemplary life is because there is a measure of self-control in their life. They don't get puffed up. God continually humbles them. In the old days, it was called self-possession. It's called self-control now. It even goes along with a self, healthy self-image or the way you see yourself in light of God and others. There was an old book on leadership written by Warren Bennis. who's a well-known management consultant and leadership uh, guru, really, and he wrote this book called Why Leaders Can't Lead. And he said this, this was kind of in another era, but he said this, magnanimous and or humble people are notable for their self-possession, self-control. They know who they are, they have healthy egos, but do not take pride in who they are. They take compliments with a grain of salt and take intelligent criticism without anger. Such people learn from their mistakes and don't harp on the mistakes of others. They are gracious winners and losers. And they use an example that was popular in that moment, so some of you won't know who I'm talking about right now, but he used the example of a tennis star, John McEnroe. And he said, tennis star John McEnroe is neither magnanimous nor humble. And then he said, Albert Schweitzer and Albert Einstein were. 
He said, today there are far more McEnroe's than there are Schweitzer's and Einstein's. And self-possession declines as self-importance rises. He said, true leaders are by definition both magnanimous and humble. A leader's influence doesn't come from trying to influence, but from living a life that is exemplary, not perfect, but an example to others that they can follow. If you respond well to leadership in the church, you, you respect them and listen to them. They said, here's what we were like around you. And then they would say, we urge you, we even command you, and they're giving God's word to them. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, he even said, Paul said, if anyone does not listen to what we say in this letter, stay away from them. You're to receive and love your leaders and follow well. And I remember back in the late 1990s, I was on a missions trip in India. And a good friend of mine was, was leading the trip. I was one of his followers on the trip, and he was a good leader. There was a man on the trip that didn't like the leader and just pushed against him the whole time. Complained about him to his face and behind his back on a mission strip. They had to have a little sit down at one point. This person just kept going on and on and they just weren't a good follower. But my friend uh, was exemplary, didn't get upset, was kind, was firm, was gentle, was humble. You follow imperfect human leaders as you follow Jesus who is perfect. But a good leader pays attention to his followers. I had a friend yesterday that told me about their church that he and his wife started going to recently. And this man came from a really good Bible church that um, really cared for the flock. And uh, they started going to another church. They had moved and they started going to another church. And he said this, he said, you're not going to get a call from a pastor or an elder at the church I'm going to. And it made me sad. And that happens sometimes. God forbid that it would happen at Grace Church of Orange. A good leader pays attention to the followers and feeds and guides and protects. And even Titus 1.9 says, elder is to hold fast the trustworthy word as taught that he may exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Leader doesn't have to tell anyone they're a leader, but they live a life that is an example. Imperfect, but it's a reflection of Christ's perfect example and gives clarity for what's expected, gives role clarity even. I recently had the opportunity to observe a team of people working together over several weeks. And from top down, everyone knew their role. They, they all knew who was in charge, but nobody was bossing anyone around or yelling at each other. They knew what they were supposed to do. They respected the position they were in. They respected the position of others. They did their work well, worked hard. But everyone knew who was in charge and everyone knew what everyone was supposed to do. And they had a camaraderie. They, they'd been friends for many years, friendship built over many years. That's how the church should be. They could talk freely with each other, but when it came down to it, they did what there was, there was expected of them, with, with pretty much like with a joy. This is what I do. And I thought to myself, and this wasn't in a Christian leadership context, I thought, that should be 
what it's like. Everyone should know their role and then do what God calls them to do with a humility and a, and a, and a joy. Now, it's interesting. If, if a leader is uh, living in a life that's worthy to be an example, they're going to be mentoring future faithful leaders. Every, every good church should be doing that. And it, they should be mentoring men and women and boys and girls into ministry, into serving the Lord. We should be servants of Christ. We're not swagger. We're not having the schemes. We're not having the self-service motives. We're, we're living in sincerity, even, even going through suffering together as servants of the Most High God and of, of stewards of the Word of God. We are to then mentor future faithful leaders. I told our elders a while back, it's been quite a while, but I said, I, I want to train as many young men as I can for, for ministry to be pastors. It doesn't leave anybody out. That's just, that's one of my, my heart uh, desires that we have been wanting to do. And sometimes we send people out. We raise them up and send them out, and it's painful. We send out Brian Zuniga, send out Michael Shera, others. Um, but we want to raise people up in informal ministry roles, but also uh, informal ministry roles. We want to raise people up who are either paid to do that ministry or unpaid. We have elders who work full-time and get paid by a company and then work here full-time for free, pretty much. Praise God for elders like we have. I hope, by the way, that you're really thankful for our, our staff and elders and leaders, our, our deacons and deaconesses. I, pray, I hope that you're, you're seeing that, we, that God has raised up some leaders that are, that are, are humble in what they do, I think of uh, Andrew McNeil and Connor Haas and Winston Weber and James Holt and so many others that we get the privilege to work with. And I hope you see that. I hope you see even our newest elders, Tom Radmilovich and Paul Phillips and George Miklia. They, they, they said, yeah, we'll do this. It's not easy. They're not getting all this applause, but they're serving the flock and they're seeking to live an exemplary life and care for the flock with us as a group of elders. I would say this is not simply about elders who you are your example. Uh, we need to have exemplary leaders who you can see up close and, and watch that are godly, mature men and women and what that looks like. That's why we have women's mentoring and men's mentoring. And guys, you need to know godly men in the church and watch their lives and, and learn from one another. If there's no godly men building into your life, you're like a ship without a rudder and you're just floating, drifting. Gals, we have many mature godly women here. In this church, make a point to be positioned where you are able to observe and see godly living in action from godly women and not where everyone's, anyone, that no one would say, I'm living a perfect example because they're prideful. No, no one's going to be like that. But faithful followers must be mentored and must be led and, you know, even with a focus on raising up pastors and elders. I, I came across... Uh, a book recently where someone wrote a book about Jonathan Edwards. And some people get this picture of what Jonathan Edwards was like, and he was saying, this is why you need to appreciate Jonathan Edwards as a pastoral mentor. This guy, Reese Besant, and he wrote this book, and he said, there's five practices that marked Jonathan Edwards' approach to developing future leaders. He said, first, it was friendship. Be friends with those that you're mentoring. And secondly, he said, conversation. Talk about the word of God and Jesus with each other. That's a deliberate means of training. It was free exchange of ideas and a respectful relationship. Uh, Jonathan Edwards did this. 
18th century London and also in New England. It happened in coffee houses and other public places. Isn't that interesting? That's the same place it happens now. We cultivate a gospel identity in each other's lives by discussing the word of God. He, he worked on apprenticeship where someone would learn ministry in the real life context tailored to pastoral training. That's why we have a pastoral internship. That's why we want to train up pastors and elders. Edwards trained up mentees that would train others who would train others based right there on 2 Timothy 2.2. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to train others also. And he did so uh, to train them in fasting and prayer and humility and self-examination. Edwards was king about that. Self-examination and repentance. He helped them to, to learn to think biblically and to listen and to ask questions. His home was considered a parsonage seminary because that friendship and the doctrine and discipleship happened many times in their home. But the last two things was, he, one, he wrote letters to people that he was mentoring. You know, he wrote letters. We can text, we can email, we can write letters. He wrote one to one mentee, Joseph Bellamy, and here's the, the range of topics that he to spoke of. How to sell sheep, <laughs> reflections on marriage, discussion about post-Reformation dogmatics, and a plea to visit soon. And then he spoke on leadership. And he said leadership should be shaped by the cross and by the resurrection. And it is costly. He said desperate times require devoted leaders. At an ordination sermon in 1743, he said, as you stand in Christ's stead towards his people to act as his ambassador, should you not show the same spirit, the same love for souls, and imitate Christ's readiness to deny and suffer, and even Paul's to spend and be spent. His ordination sermon was called The Great Concern of a Watchman for Souls. There are a few leaders that I have latched onto over the years that have helped me greatly, leaders that have mentored me in Christian ministry. I've seen them shoulder the load. I've seen them say the buck stops with me. I've seen them be bold and humble in their communication. I've seen them have the hard talks with people in a loving way. The church must have leaders that are humble and bold, servants of Christ, taking appropriate action towards goals that are God-honoring, knowing your calling, displaying character, caring for the flock, living an exemplary life, imperfect testimony, but reflecting the perfect Savior. Because Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is the one we look to. I was thinking just yesterday of Jesus in John 13 when he, before he went to the cross, took a towel and began to wash his disciples' feet. He blessed his people doing the menial task of a common house servant. And he said, I'm giving you an example that you would do likewise. We put up a towel rack at our house the other day, and there was this towel rack in one of our bathrooms that was just our nemesis. It would just keep coming off. We put it back on the wall, and so we put a new one up the other day, and I was thinking to myself about Jesus in John 13 and about taking up the towel, and I thought, well, we could do that. Or we could just be a towel rack and just hold the towel. Just be as humble as we can and do whatever we can point people to Christ as servants of the Most High God, as stewards of the word, 
the servants of the church. There's an old song, not your stepping stone. And I think for Christian leadership, we would say, um, yes, we are. We are servants of the most high God, pointing the way to Christ. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love. Thank you that you are our leader and we are your servants. And we praise you in your name. Amen. Stand with us as we close the singing. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust
Acts 13.36, we read these words. David, after he served the purposes of God in his generation, fell asleep. That means he died. They carried him out. That should be our ambition, that we would serve the purposes of Jesus in our generation and then go to be with Jesus. And we learned this morning that uh, our dear sister Colleen Songer is with Jesus now. She's a longtime member of Grace Church. Hasn't been here in a while because she's been homebound and for 11 and a half years been battling uh, disease. And so she's with the Lord and she's fully healed. And so we rejoice, uh, or we grieve with hope, grieve with hope of the resurrection. And we look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the gift of life and eternal life in Christ. We thank you for the, the privilege to gather together today, Lord. As we go now, may we serve your purposes in this generation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, so.